0: Well, I invite you and encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, we want you to have a Bible to follow along. So these brothers have come up front. They have some Bibles if you need one. As they make their way to the back, they'll get you one of those Bibles. If you get their attention, keep it. Bring it back every week. That's our gift to you. We want everyone to own a copy of God's Word. Romans 12. Let me say thank you to our instrumentalists, our musicians, our musicians. Uh, they had a conspiracy of circumstances that took about 40% of their group away today, but they filled in uh, admirably. So thank you very well, very much for leading us in musical worship. Anti-intellectualism has a long and inglorious history within evangelicalism. Churches that believe and preach the Bible are often, though happily not always, opposed to the cultivation of the life of the mind. There are a number of reasons for this, some theological, some historical. For example, many Christians who may know nothing of the philosopher Plato nevertheless unwittingly follow his thought by promoting what is known as Platonic dualism. Plato sharply divided the material and immaterial components of the human person and famously said the body is the prison of the soul, meaning the most important part of the individual, according to Plato, the immaterial soul is unfortunately trapped in a material body and it awaits its release from that prison. Theologian John Murray said the body is not an appendage. The notion that the body is the prison house of the soul and that the soul is incarcerated in the body is pagan in origin and it's anti-biblical. It is Platonic. And he has no resemblance, it has no resemblance to the biblical conception. You see friends, God likes matter. He likes the material world. And the reason he does is because he made it. God had made humanity, he made us both physical and spiritual, and he pronounced that creation very good in all of its components. So one reason that we tend to be anti-intellectual is because we're anti-matter. I've heard over the years when preachers and teachers would deprecate the body, sometimes due to a misunderstanding of how the Bible uses the word flesh. For example, in the Bible, we're told the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another. And then Jesus said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So that sounds like the body is is bad. However, flesh in passages like those does not refer to the body, but rather to what we sometimes call the sin nature. There's a different Greek word in your New Testament. Many of you know that your New Testament was originally written in Greek, and then it's been translated for us into English and other languages. There's a different Greek word in your New Testament for, for body, and we'll see that word a little bit later in the message. So when some read the word flesh, and they equate it with a body, and it's invariably in a negative context, that means for them the body is bad. I remember a sermon by my pastor when I was a young adult in which he was talking about our battle with sin and he quoted verses like the ones that I've just presented and then he grabbed his arm and he pulled on his, and he pulled on his arm, he pulled on his skin, he was wearing short sleeves, and he pulled on his skin and while grabbing at his skin he said quote, this stinking flesh is the problem. That his body is the problem. So one reason for anti-intellectualism is a deprecation of the value of the material world, of of matter, including our bodies and the brains contained within those bodies. Another theological reason for it is a defective view of what's called common grace. Common grace is God's grace given to all people, including non-Christians. Christians are distinguished from others because we've received God's saving grace that's offered in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, but all people are the recipients of God's common grace. It's given to all humanity. Jesus said, Your father causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So sin, though it affects every person, does not destroy every endeavor of God's image bearers, even those who are outside of Christ, Christian or not, whether those endeavors are in the arts, literature, music, or other pursuits. Because we are all made in the image of God, and owing to his common grace to our fallen humanity, one does not have to be a Christian to produce good things. And we who are Christians can and should be discerning Discerning consumers and beneficiaries of those good things. And for those same reasons, just by the way, a good politician does not need to have to be a Christian either. Did you know that? And because we believe that, we sometimes get people in office, sometimes like like almost always, who are not Christians. But then we feel like we have to sort of baptize them and make them Christians. And so I hear people say, well, you know, I think he's really a Christian. Really? What makes you think that? And why is that necessary? Do you agree with his policies or not? A non-Christian in God's common grace can actually rule well. So in addition to the erroneous theological reasons for neglecting the life of the mind, there's also a historical reason that many Christians are wary of it. Some of you know that about a 100 years ago, a growing chasm between Liberalism, not political liberalism, but theological liberalism and fundamentalism came into full view in what's called the fundamentalist modernist controversy. For decades before, many institutions of religious higher learning had abandoned foundational truths of Christianity, including the most foundational, because from it all others flow, namely belief in the Bible as God's inerrant revelation to us. The modernists or the theological liberals jettisoned belief in anything that was supernatural, and so miracles were denied, including the resurrection of Jesus, which is absolutely central to the gospel message. People who believed the gospel responded differently to that challenge. Some left those schools to start better schools. Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, where I've been privileged to do doctoral work, was started when Bible-believing Professors at Princeton Seminary resigned in protest and started a new school. In fact, among the later faculty there was theologian John Murray, who I quoted a bit earlier. But others practically discarded education altogether in response to this. Reasoning, we don't need all that book learning. We just need to get out there and preach the gospel. And besides, we don't trust educational institutions anyway, since they betrayed us in the past. And so instead of a standard seminary education, two- and three-year institutes became the vehicles through which many ministers received their education if, in fact, they pursued education at all. You would be amazed at how many pastors, even those with the title doctor, have little or no education. Well, how'd they get the title doctor? Their doctorate was awarded to them as an honorary title by a non-accredited institution usually run by a friend of theirs. I'm not making that up. All of this disdain for the mind, then, produced books in recent decades, titles like The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind and Your Mind Matters. Now, the mere fact that someone would have to write a book saying your mind matters tells you that, indeed, there is an issue. Due in part, then, to these factors that I've laid out, many Christians believe that the purest form of communication from God to us bypasses the mind altogether. Today, we continue the series begun several weeks ago, titled, as you see on the screen, Myths that Christians Believe, and then below that, I don't know if you can see the type, but it says, About the Holy Spirit, angels, and demons. Now, we normally do studies through books of the Bible, but I'm doing this topical series for a couple of reasons. The first is I hear people talk about these issues in unbiblical ways, so I want to help us think clearly about them. But another reason I'm doing this is because I didn't want to start a new series through a book of the Bible until the irregular schedule of the next few weeks is over. The first two messages in this series... We're on April 14th, and then again two weeks ago on May the 5th. In between was Easter, and then I was away one week, and last week was Mother's Day, so we had a Mother's Day message. We'll have a fourth message in this series next Sunday. The following week, we have a guest speaker. On June 9th, we'll have what will probably be the final message in this mini-series. The following week is Father's Day, so we'll have a Father's Day message. And then on June the 23rd, we'll start a series in the book of Jonah, and then in the fall, a series through the book of Revelation. Now, the first two myths that we've looked at in this series on myths that Christians believe were, first of all, the Holy Spirit reveals truth to us. It's a myth that the Holy Spirit reveals truth to us. We saw instead that God revealed truth to others, and He's preserved that for us in the Bible. And then the second, two weeks ago, the second myth was that the Holy Spirit's work can be known apart from the Word. And now today, we're going to see in the title of the message at the top of the outline that you should have received on the way in, that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take that out. And you see that the myth today is that the Holy Spirit bypasses the mind. Let's pray. Let's ask God to help us. Father, we thank you that we are here. We're thanking you that we are here because you are the one who in your sovereign providence guides all the circumstances of our lives. And so you, it is you who has made it possible. So thank you for the health. Thank you for the freedom. And thank you for granting the desire through various means for us to be here. And now here we are as your people in your presence with your word opened before us. We ask you, Father, now to grant us a concentrated mind, a focused mind, an open heart, so that we can understand your word, so that we can be changed by it, and thereby please you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, in Romans chapter 12, the first verse says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, we'll get to the outline in just a bit. But first, let me take a little bit to set the context of verse number 2, which gets to the heart of what we're looking at today. In verse 1, it starts with the word therefore, meaning that what's said in verse 1 of chapter 12 and following is based on what precedes. Therefore, based upon what's already been said in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. And all the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans are an explanation of the gospel, a full explanation of the gospel. And now, in light of that explanation of the gospel, therefore, here's what you should do. In view of God's mercies presented, verse 1 is saying, in chapters 1 through 11... It's saying we should respond by living different lives, different from those that we pursued before embracing Christ and what he's done for us. Now, when it says in verse 1, therefore, in view of God's, it says in the NIV, mercies, that's what most of you have. It says mercy, but it's actually uh, the, the word is literally plural in view of God's mercies. Because in chapters 1 through 11, there are multiple ways mentioned in which God has shown his mercy to those who belong to Jesus. I want to put on the screen just some of those. But in chapter 1 and verse 7, one of his mercies is his love shown to us. In chapter 2, his kindness. In chapter 3, his grace. His atonement. The justification that he's provided for us because of the life and death of Jesus. The forgiveness that we receive in chapter 4 when we come to him of our sins, past, present, and future. The reconciliation, chapter 5, tells us about that we have with God, though we were estranged from him, now we've been reconciled to him and have a relationship with him. He's given us eternal life, according to chapter 6. He's given us the Holy Spirit. We look forward to the future resurrection We have present adoption into his family. One day we will have glorified bodies. And then, of course, there's the word mercy itself that God has shown to us. So his mercies, these varied kindnesses and graces that God has bestowed upon us. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. It's saying that the Christian life is a sacrificial life. It's an important concept that involves killing the sinful desires that express themselves in the way we use our bodies. Back in chapter 3 of this book, we were given a catalog of the ways that we sin And in chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, it speaks of how we use different parts of our anatomy to sin. It talks about our throats and our tongues and our mouths and our lips and our feet and our eyes. And that's why in chapter 6, we're commanded, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. It's not saying that our bodies are sinful, hear this, but that the body is the vehicle through which we sin. Your body is not the reason you sin, but it's the means by which you carry out sin. The Greek word that's translated body there is soma. It's not the one that was translated flesh in the verses that we saw before, the word sarx. This is soma, a different word from flesh. Our bodies are not the problem. Indwelling sin is. The sacrificial lifestyle is characterized by useful service. And holiness and a consuming passion to please God, verse 1 is saying. And this is the essence of true worship in all of life, not just on the Lord's Day. So this verse, verse 1, ends with, this is your true and proper worship. But this holy life, to which we're called by God, cannot be realized if we, friends, live the same way that the world does. If we live the same way the world does, then we're, by definition, not living the holy life. Now, why is that? That's because the word holy means to be set apart, to be different. That's actually what the word means. The Christian lifestyle is to be radically different. And that's why verse 2 says, if we're going to live this holy, different, set apart kind of life, verse 2, we cannot be conformed to the pattern of this world when the Bible says not to conform to this world, it means do not allow the values of the world to shape you. The word that's translated world in verse 2 is aeon. We get our word eon. We say eons from it. It means age. So don't be conformed to the values of the present age in which you live. J.B. Phillips translated that phrase, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. So in contrast to being conformed to the world's mold by pursuing its values, verse 2 says, instead, be transformed. And the word that's translated, sorry for all the translation, but the word that's translated transformed is the one from which we get our word metamorphosis. And It refers here to the fundamental transformation of character and conduct away from the standards of the world and into the image of Christ himself. Now, there's one other verse in the New Testament that uses the same word that's translated transformed. And it means that very thing. Second Corinthians chapter 3, we all are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. So in view of all that God and Jesus Christ has done for you, Paul who wrote this is saying, live differently from the world, different from what you were before you came to Christ but how how do we live these transformed lives and verse 2 says do not be do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that's how by the renewing of your mind now do you see that all of that depreciating of the mind and the life of the mind and the anti-intellectualism. Do you see why that becomes a problem? Because it's by the renewing of the mind that we actually are conformed to Christ, that we live differently than the world. And so I say in your outline this. The Holy Spirit communicates to our minds. Now the term for renewing in verse 2 is based on a word for new that means new in quality. A renewed mind has a qualitative difference from the mindset that we find in the culture around us. Now, although this passage does not tell us how our mind becomes renewed, we know from what the Bible says elsewhere that it's by a combination of the Spirit of God and the Word of God. When you were converted, when I was converted to Christ, assuming that we have been, it was because we heard the gospel message from the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God opened our mind, changing our thinking so that we then viewed God and Christ and ourselves and our sin differently. It was an operation upon the mind so that your, so that your perspective was radically altered. And again, the same Paul who wrote Romans also wrote Ephesians, and he said this, you are to no longer live in the futility, the emptiness of your thinking. That thinking has been changed. And that thinking is to be continually changed. And change is to be cultivated by the renewing of the the mind. When you were saved, the Holy Spirit moved upon you, giving you spiritual life when before we were spiritually dead. The Bible says God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. So who is it that affects this spiritual life and the transformation of our thinking? Well, the Bible says it's the Spirit of God. The Bible says the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. Then it goes on in the next verse, we'll see it in just a bit, but it says that the person with the Spirit, that is the Christian, the person who's been made alive by the Spirit of God, when they heard the gospel message, that person sees things differently. And by the Spirit of God, using the Word of God, they evaluate all things through a new lens. It's the Holy Spirit who gave us this life, says Titus chapter 3. He saved us through rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So friends, it's the Holy Spirit who makes us alive so that our thinking is transformed. But how? How does he do that? By what means does he do it if, in fact, he uses any means at all? He does it, as we saw two weeks ago, by the means of the Word of God. And that's why... In Ephesians chapter 6, where we're given the armor, the Christian's armor, you remember some of that, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation? you got this one offensive weapon. Everything else is defensive. Helmet, breastplate, shield. But you got this one offensive weapon, a sword. And here's what it's called, the sword of the Spirit. And it tells us the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. A renewed mind, first and foremost, then, has a grasp of biblical truth. We learn to think in biblical categories with biblical terminology. A renewed mind has an understanding of the truths of the Word of God. And a renewed mind then evaluates all things on the basis of that truth. The passage I alluded to just a bit ago in 1 Corinthians 2, the person with the Spirit makes evaluations, judgments about all things. But he does that now from a different, radically altered perspective, a different mindset. This is why the night before Jesus was crucified, he prayed to the Father in John chapter 17 in this beautiful prayer that goes for 23 verses. And in the first five of those, he prays for himself. And then he prays for the 11 who he's sending out. And then beginning in verse 20, he prays for us, those of us who would come to him in the future through the message that the apostles would preserve for us. And in the midst of that high priestly prayer of Jesus, this marvelous prayer, Jesus is talking about sending them and by extension us into the world, a hostile world to the message of the gospel. And he says, you're not to be like the world. I'm sending you into it just as the Father has sent me, but you're not to be like that world. And in the midst of this prayer, he says these famous words. Sanctify them. Sanctify Christians by your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify. That is the word for make holy. Set them apart. Make them different. How? By your truth. What is your truth? It's the word of God. From the very beginning of Christian history, the Bible says the early Christians Devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The Bible tells us you were taught in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Notice teaching. You were taught. Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy, and he said, Continue in what you have learned, because the holy scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation. All scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching. And so they continued in the apostles' teaching. They were taught. You continue, Timothy, in what you've learned because it gives you the knowledge that you then apply towards salvation. And all Scripture is useful for the first thing on a list of four is teaching. Over and over and over in the Bible, the emphasis is on learning, on education, on teaching that is centered on the Word of God. Friends, the Holy Spirit communicates to our minds through the revelation that he has given us in the Bible. Secondly, the Holy Spirit's work is mediated. Mediated. When I say mediated, I mean he does not bypass our minds in communicating this truth to us. His truth is mediated through our thinking ability, our God-given thinking ability. Now, if someone denies that, which many people do, certainly in practice, if you deny that, that makes you a mystic. A mystic is one who believes that God communicates truth to us in an unmediated, immediate manner. The Concise Dictionary of Theology defines mysticism this way. It's a form of religious practice which seeks direct knowledge of God rather than an intellectual knowledge of him. So a mystic is someone who will encounter God. Maybe by looking at a sunrise, and then they have what they would call a God moment. Or out among nature. Or something, something happens where there's an immediate communication from God, or so they believe. But the Bible does not teach mysticism, because as we're going to see, it teaches the Holy Spirit's work is, in fact, mediated. Meaning a couple of things. I say in your outline, he does not work directly with our spirit. He does not work directly. Now, I'm not saying he doesn't work with our spirit. I'm saying he doesn't do it directly. He does it in a mediated way. Now, Christian cable television is filled with mystics. The man who gave rise to so many of these is a guy named, who's now passed, but named Kenneth Hagan. He was the spiritual mentor of Kenneth Copeland. Kenneth Copeland, in turn, has mentored many of the other mystics that you'll see on the Trinity Broadcasting Network, for instance, if you make the mistake of watching that stuff. Now, I made the mistake years ago, and I saw Kenneth Hagin teaching on how the Holy Spirit communicates with us in what he calls his spirit man. The Holy Spirit talks to me in my spirit man, he would say. And he located the exact place of the spirit man in his body as he was teaching this. The Holy Spirit communicates in my spirit man. And then he says from Proverbs 20 and verse 27, The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord searching all the inward parts of the belly. And then he pointed to his belly and he said the spirit man is in his midsection. Now, I was actually glad to hear that because if the Holy Spirit is located in your midsection, I have more of the Spirit than most people have. (laughs) So for Hagen and his mystic friends, the Spirit does His work directly on our spirit. And here's the important thing, bypassing the mind. And this is at the root of modern Pentecostalism and charismaticism. And it's greatly affected the worship life of even non-Pentecostal churches. The root of a mystical view of the Spirit's work, in which the Spirit just hits you and you must respond. That's what is at bottom. That's what's foundational to the approach that many people take today to the Christian life. In fact, to fail in their minds, to fail to respond when the Spirit hits you would be disrespectful to the Spirit who is moving you. So a key question is whether or not, in fact, the Spirit works that way. Does the Holy Spirit grab you, as it were, and in effect take over and you passively react? Is the height of spirituality... To be, quote, open to the work of the Spirit? And again, quote, to say, Holy Spirit, have your way in this service, and then we react accordingly? Is that the way the Spirit operates? Well, it turns out, no. And why do I say no? Because in a chapter in your New Testament that is devoted, the entire chapter, to the operation of the Spirit, how the Spirit works. The Apostle Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 14, combats explicitly the mystical idea, explicitly. He corrects the error of the Corinthian church, the mystical error of the Corinthian church. That thought that the Spirit indeed bypasses the mind and goes directly to your spirit and moves you to do things, sort of hits you, And Paul combats that very directly. In the middle of that chapter, he says this, I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my understanding. The King James says, I will pray with my spirit, and I will pray with my mind also. He says, I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. You see, the spirit does not bypass the mind. Paul teaches this very directly. Whether in praying, whether in singing, God gave you that mind and the Spirit operates upon that mind. He's given you a renewed mind and he's continuing to renew that mind with a radically different perspective. And he doesn't bypass it. In fact, as I grew up in my Pentecostal church, many of you know that, that I grew up Pentecostal, That was the order of the day. That was the way our services went. People would be, and I don't say this disrespectfully, I'm just describing what happened, but people would be hit by the Spirit, sort of zapped by the Spirit. And the Spirit would move them to do something, to stand up and say something, speak in a tongue, offer a prophecy, sometimes be slain, what they called slain in the Spirit. It was, every service was like that. But it was the Spirit that was supposedly doing all of this. And as a child, I'm watching this, and I'm thinking, this is what the Spirit does. And if the Spirit does that to you, well, then, of course, it would be disobedient, it would be wrong, it would be disrespectful not to respond accordingly. Then I began, as I got a little older, to study that. I saw that the Spirit does not bypass the mind. It is not mystical. And further, in that very chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul talks about speaking in tongues, the very thing that happened when I was a kid in our churches, about prophecies, the very thing that would happen in our churches. Someone would say they had a message from God and they would stand up and speak it. And in that very chapter, toward the end, here's what Paul says. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. Do you see what he's saying there? The Spirit does not just grab you and throw you out of your seat, as it were. The Spirit of the prophets is actually still under the control of the prophets. Now, could the Spirit do that? Of course. But Paul is saying the Spirit does not do that. God is the one who gave us these minds and he uses those minds as part of a mediated process in carrying out his work. So, the Holy Spirit does not work directly with our spirit. And I say in your outline, He does not work directly with our emotions. And I say that because you hear people say things like, You could sense the spirit moving. Maybe you've said this, it's well intended. But you could sense the spirit moving. I must confess to you, I don't know what that means. Now, you may say to me, well, that's because you're not spiritual. If you're spiritual, you would have the antenna, you would know the deal when the Spirit's moving. But you could sense the Spirit moving. When I attended my Pentecostal church as a boy and as a teenager, I saw many, many services like this in in which people came away saying that. But I discovered something, and again, I'm just telling you what I've observed And I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I have many very good friends. My father was the pastor of the church that I was in until he passed away at age 11. His brother, my uncle, became the pastor after that. I have family and friends. I look forward to seeing my uncle and my father in heaven in the future. So it is not about being disrespectful. It's trying to be truthful and accurate. But I discovered something. I watched this happening as I was a teenager trying to figure out what's going on here. And I discovered that the Spirit's moving was invariably associated with the musicians playing. When the music stopped, the Spirit stopped. This is how the services went. The musicians got everybody going. And the Spirit started moving. And then as the musicians got tired, the spirit apparently got tired as well. But it's not just musicians who do it, who manipulate the emotions and then we call that the spirit. Preachers practice the art of stirring the emotions getting people to respond in a particular way, often by walking the aisle to the front. And at the front, it's often called an altar. And when many people do that, it said the spirit was moving. Well, how do we know that? And evangelists, honestly, evangelists, camp speakers, they've cultivated the way of doing this. The way of getting people to do what they want them to do, respond the way they want them to respond. And so let's make some application of this then. And I have this for you in your outline. Given those truths, then how can we apply this? First, we should understand that truth should inform response. Truth should inform response. That is, before you respond to something, that something should have been flagged as true. So you, you should have heard something that, then you, that is true and you respond to it. But see, in a, non, in, a, in a non-mediated approach to the spirit, you're not responding to anything except the impulse. The spirit hits you, zaps you, moves on you, and then you respond. There's no thinking that goes with that. And very often in churches, as I said, that goes with the, that goes with the, the music. And so we equate the moving of the music with the moving of the spirit. It's one of the reasons that people think that the preaching time is actually not worship. Because in the preaching time, you're sitting there listening and you're like thinking and you're like, really, is that is that true? What he's saying? And, you know, when is he going to be done? And, you know, you're thinking all those things. But when the music's going on, you're just kind of, you know, you're going with the music. And that's what people think of then as worship. You know this because they call the music guy the worship leader. When in fact he's the music guy. And the preaching is part of the worship as well. But if you equate worship with the move of the Spirit, and the move of the Spirit is immediate, then that's going to be most evidenced during the music. And so, You're responding to the stimulus. You're responding to the atmosphere. But you haven't sung a note yet in many churches, and people have already responded. Am I right about that? Have you ever seen what happens? The music gets going, and you don't want to see me imitate what they do because I don't have rhythm. But it's, come on, everybody, and we start. And it's, okay, now what are we clapping about? I mean, the first thing you should ask is, what are we clapping about? We haven't even said anything yet. But you see, we all start, and we all start moving. And then we start, but we've already responded. We've already got you going. We've already got the Spirit moving. By virtue of the music, truth should inform response. People start moving when the music begins, before anything's actually said. And what is it we're actually responding to? Now hear this, you can get anyone to respond that way because it's a physical reaction to an intentional stimulus. You can have unbelievers come into a service and react the exact same way. You can go to a rock concert, they'll do the exact same thing, right? We should come ready to respond and the leaders do not need to coax a response from us. That's why our leaders do their thing They play their music, and then the congregation joins in. They're not trying to manufacture a response. Secondly, spontaneity is not authenticity. You see, in the unmediated approach to the Spirit's work, spontaneity is key. Because the Spirit's work hits you, moves on you, and so you spontaneously do something. And so, therefore, preaching should be spontaneous in this approach. You get up and you let the spirit move. When you pray, the worst thing you could possibly do in that approach is actually prepare a prayer and write it out. Now, I'm not saying you have to write out prayers, but I do. And many people would look at that and say, that's the most unspiritual thing you could possibly do. How's the spirit moving in that? Well, Look, if the Spirit can move while I'm standing here, why couldn't the Spirit move when I was in my study writing that prayer? And I would suggest to you, He works through that. He works through the mind and thinking through what's going to happen on the Lord's Day and what we're going to be talking about and how to best pray and lead God's people in that way. But spontaneity is king if you take the unmediated approach and therefore that's authentic and anything that's not spontaneous is then inauthentic. In my church that I grew up in, it was considered unspiritual, downright unspiritual to have an order of service because that was a means of quenching the spirit, taking a passage out of context. Thirdly, Emotion is not necessarily spiritual. Friends, lose the idea that when you see somebody getting emotional, that means that that person is responding to the Spirit. It may be. But you have no way of knowing that. If emotion is actually spiritual, if if you're really going to demonstrate that you're in tune with the Spirit by virtue of your emotion... If that's the way you do it, then think about this for a moment. Isn't it the case that some people are just by personality more emotional than others? And so we're going to make the mistake of thinking that those people are more spiritual. And conversely, what are we going to do? We're going to say other people aren't. So we're going to look around in the crowd and we're going to say, you know, are these people really with it? And if they're not with it in the way that I define being with it, emotional, active, then they somehow must be unspiritual, which is the final point. Non-emotion is not necessarily unspiritual. Many of us actually make it a point to think about what's happening. Think about what we're singing as we're thinking about what we're singing, then often the emotions are affected properly because it's a proper response to truth and marvelous truth about Christ and who He is and what He's done for us. But even then, the expression of that emotion is different for different people. And so the idea that we would set criteria... For a congregation, for people that if you're really spiritual, you're going to show that by being, and the buzzword today is passionate. And you're going to demonstrate those passions in a particular way. And if you don't meet that criteria, it must mean that you're unspiritual. All of that is based on a false view of the work of the spirit that says the work of the spirit is immediate and thus spontaneity is king. Here's your take home truth. The Spirit's work is accomplished through our minds. We're going to pray. And as we do, let's thank God for the minds that he's given us. He created them. Let's thank him for the thinking faculty that he's given to his image bearers because he's a thinking, rational God. Let's thank him for the word of God that he's given us that mediates this work of God on our minds. As the Spirit illumines, and that's what the Bible teaches, the Spirit illumines, turns the light on for those who are Christians, those who have been given life by the Spirit, He turns the light on regularly in their lives as they read Scripture and they think about it and they meditate upon it, and it transforms them. Let's thank God for all of that. Let's ask God to make us people who are continually being conformed to the image of Jesus by the renewing of our minds. Let's bow. Father, we thank you for your Spirit, the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the Word of God. We thank you that the Spirit of God and the Word of God work in tandem and they operate on the minds of believers, minds that you have given us, Minds that you have regenerated made alive spiritually so that now our perspective is radically altered on all things. But, Lord, you expect and you delight in your people using these rational faculties that you've given us in order to apprehend you, to know more about who you are and what you are like and what you are doing in your world. Oh, Lord, help us to be very careful that we don't conform to the spirit of the age. That we don't import from the world into the church worldly forms of thinking about what's authentic and what is not. May we, your people, be people of the book, people of the word, people of the spirit. May we show that because we immerse ourselves in it, because we delight in it, and because we obey it. And Lord, we ask for your aid in this because we cannot do it without your Holy Spirit. As a result, Lord, we pray that we will honor you. We will honor you in the way we treat your word and the way that we submit to your word. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.